All right, well, we are back today to carry on a little series on worship music. If you weren't here last week, we're pressing pause on the Gospel of Mark. We're normally going through Mark on Sunday mornings. But we're addressing the ever-important issue of music in the church. And from a shepherding point of view, I have a strategic reason for bringing the subject up. Namely that a, a little while ago, we made a little musical transition here at, at the church just by circumstance, our beloved piano player Barbara had some health issues, so she needed to take a leave of absence. And in the meantime, we've gotten to know Kevin, who's been able to serve us musically since that time. But this has brought about a bit of a style change from piano-led worship to acoustic guitar-led worship. Now, it's not like we're making super drastic changes. We're not bringing in a rock band. We're not banishing the piano. But still, anytime a church goes through any sort of a musical transition, they need to be careful. Because over the past 50 years, music has become one of, one of the most divisive and controversial issues in the church. And starting last week, I introduced you to the modern phenomenon known as the worship wars. Ever since the advent of contemporary Christian music in the 60s and 70s, churches have been splitting and, and dividing left and right over this issue of music used in worship. And people have very strong beliefs about this issue, and some have proven willing to divide or damage a church over it. So how can Christian brothers and sisters reconcile over their differences? How can people who come from very different backgrounds and traditions and upbringings come to see eye to eye and make peace in these worship wars? Well, first, you have to understand what is really causing the division. That's what we set out to discover last week with the first part. And there we found for the most part that most people are not fighting these worship wars over the Bible. In other words... If you ask most people why they have so much trouble with a certain music style or instrument used in worship, they wouldn't really point to a chapter and a verse to make their case, if you know what I mean. Instead, for most, the real cause of their conflicts and division is, boils down to two things, tradition and preference. Church tradition and personal preference. These are the real instigators behind the worship wars. However, through our study last week, we also found that there are illegitimate reasons for division and strife in the church. A lot of people come from strong musical church traditions. These traditions don't really come from the Bible, it's just what their church does, and that's fine. Take, for example, the piano. The piano is not a biblical instrument. It was invented in the 1700s. But a lot of churches worship the Lord with a piano, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That's their tradition. The problem comes, however, when you judge others who don't share your tradition. When you come to see your ways as the only way, and you look down, even divide from others who are different. And since no music style is biblically mandated, it's just a tradition issue, which if you take it too far, turns into legalism. Personal preference poses just a greater problem. Many people, they don't care about their tradition, but they do care about themselves. Our culture is now all about having it your way, and many people come to church expecting to have it their way. This leads to a very selfish, man-centered, consumeristic approach to church where people, they come, they want what they want. If they don't find something that suits all of their needs and preferences, they'll leave, they'll find someplace else, or they'll even just go start their own group to have it their way. Some are willing to leave or even divide a church if their personal preferences are not being met. 
But this betrays a self-centered, prideful heart, which is antithetical to true worship. Worship is not about you and your preferences. It's about God and his preferences. It's okay to have personal preferences when it comes to worship music, but if you would malign or divide from your brother or sister over something like musical style that it really shows the issues with you and your heart, not them and their musical taste. So overall, last time we diagnosed the, the real causes of these worship wars and we, we put them through a biblical lens and found that they, they don't fly, that these are not legitimate reasons to speak against, to slander, to divide, to split from one another. Churches should not be having so much grief over these music style, music instrument issues. Now that said, churches still struggle, right? These may not be legitimate reasons, but they sure are reasons, and they're strong reasons, and many people hold on to them. So what can be done about this? And don't, don't forget, this is a huge deal. Second Corinthians, for example, we, we learn how Jesus, God's Son, reconciled us to himself through his death on the cross. And after that, he gave to us, the church, what? The ministry of reconciliation. God has now made us his ambassadors to, to share his light to the world, to share the gospel, the message of reconciliation to the world. But if we can't even reconcile with one another over something like music style, it kind of shoots our witness in the foot. It's a little bit hypocritical. So how does the church reconcile with itself over worship style differences? What counsel would you give a struggling church that has all these different members that are holding on to their traditions and their preferences? What, what would you say? How could they overcome? Or maybe you personally, maybe you've been having a hard time with this issue here given our little change from piano to guitar for a couple months. You know, what we have done at this church, both in the past and in the present, maybe it wasn't your tradition or your preference. Hopefully after last week, you now see that your traditions and preferences are invalid reasons for stirring up dissension and strife in the church, which there hasn't been any of this, but I'm, I'm teaching to, 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 to head it off, of course. But maybe you are internally still struggling to reconcile with different people who have different traditions, different preferences. How do you overcome? How, what do you do about it? How can you overcome so as to pursue peace and reconciliation within the body? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. I'd say that the vast majority of these worship wars have been fought and lost in the heart. People aren't really dividing over a musical instrument. They're dividing over their hearts. This is a heart issue, and when pride and self rule in the heart, of course there's going to be division. It's a heart problem, and so it calls for a heart-level solution. Yes, in the future, we still have ahead of us in this little series on the worship wars. We're going to talk about what the Bible does say about worship style and musical instruments and all that stuff. But, but you see, we have to begin by tackling the core of this issue, the heart. It's what it's all about at the, at the end of the day. And last week, we identified the heart problem behind it all. And today, we need to find out how, how do we resolve this heart problem? What can be done at the heart level to stop these worship wars, before they even begin. Well, I want to suggest to you three essential heart attitudes that bring peace to the worship wars. Three essential heart attitudes that bring peace to the worship wars. The first one might come as a surprise to you. It is submission. Submission. 
Now, obviously, we've got to talk about that. The world hates the word submission and the idea of submission. They're all about doing things their way. And the anthem of the world is the Frank Sinatra song, My Way, which he called our real national anthem, by the way. And today our church is all about self-help, self-esteem, self-worth, self-respect, self-love, the self-rules. But most often the rallying cry of the self is just a way of justifying sin in disguise. Where the world will say, you can't tell me that this is wrong, that I'm in sin. I'm doing what I want to do, and this makes me happy. Am I not entitled to be happy? I'm going to do this because this is right to me. But really underlying each sin is just, what, rebellion. Rebellion. All sin boils down to rebellion. You're rebelling against God and His ways. Every sin. In every sin, you're basically saying, God is not supreme. His ways are not best. I'm supreme. My ways are best. Wasn't this behind Satan's first rebellion in heaven? And wasn't this behind Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden? And every sin, that rebellion is repeated. And the problem here is that we're wrong. God's ways are best. Our ways are not. His ways lead to life. Our ways lead to death. Proverbs 14:12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. But as Christians, though, we happily accept the notion of submission as opposed to rebellion. Because through submission comes salvation. Isn't submission an essential aspect of faith? At salvation, you first come to acknowledge you're a sinner. You're a rebel. You have rebelled against God and his ways. And in so doing, you merit judgment. You deserve judgment. Daniel understood this as he was reflecting on Israel's judgment. And why was Israel judged by God? He says, Daniel 9.5, because we have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled. Sin and rebellion against God brings his holy judgment. The solution to this, our only hope is what? It's just God's mercy. Just his mercy. That, that's our only hope. We are rebels. We do deserve his just judgment. But we pray for his mercy. And that was Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 as well. He said, Lord, to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him. Still, that's our only hope. And thankfully, God is merciful toward rebels. He's willing to show that mercy. He's already proved it by sending his son, Jesus, to live, to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus died for rebels to bring us back to God and his ways. And by faith in Jesus, now we can be saved. But that faith, doesn't that faith involve submission? In faith, now we submit to God. Because we've been brought to know the truth, we confess No, no, God is supreme, and his ways are true and good. In salvation, there must be a forsaking of your ways in exchange for God's ways. Like Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him turn to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But you forsake first. In salvation, we submit to God and we submit to Jesus as well. We bow the knee. In salvation, aren't you confessing him as Savior and Lord? He is your Lord now. That that word means he's master. He's the master of your domain. 
you deny self to follow him. But we will do what he says, not to earn our eternal life, but because now we really believe his ways are best. I want to go that way because it leads to life. And to top it all off, we do this now with a happy heart. I am pleased to follow, to submit to the Lord. Because Jesus, he set me free from slavery to sin and rebellion. He enslaved me to himself. I'm happy to be his slave. The Bible calls us his slaves. Happy to be that. He died for our rebellion. So Christians, overall, we should be totally fine with the idea of submission. Not the world, they hate it, but we, we should get it and appreciate it. The problem, though, is that our culture is so anti-submission, so self-willed, that that attitude can rub off on believers. The old self comes out where you want things done your way. As believers, we're supposed to be all about God and His ways, but from time to time, we all can revert to the world's attitude where life, it's all about me and my ways, right? Pride comes back. Yeah, we're justified in Christ, but we're still sinners. So rebellion can still crop back up. And this can even happen in churches where fellow believers can say, no, I want things done my way. You submit to me. I'm not going to submit to you. You submit to me. And that's why church splits happen. Christians become little rebels again. They want things done their way, no matter what. And if they don't get it, well, they'll make someone pay. This is not supposed to be our way of doing things anymore. We expect that in the world. should not be this way in, in the church because Jesus has set us free from a heart of rebellion and selfishness and pride. But the question is, how then can Christians overcome the latent sin and rebellion that still dwells within our hearts? How can we find peace in the church? Well, through submission. Now, you're still probably wondering, how does submission tie into the worship wars? Am I just saying that we're supposed to give up everything we want, just throw in the towel, musically speaking? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying, but but let me explain. Let me clarify by giving you three areas of submission that bring peace to the worship wars. Three areas where God calls you to submit legitimately, and through these, this brings peace in these worship wars. You'll see what I mean as we go. Number one, you need to submit to God's word. Number one, the first area of submission, you need to submit to God's word. Ultimately, as believers, we we submit to God now and his ways. That's a defining mark of a true disciple, right? But where do we learn about God's ways? Well, in his word. And so, first and foremost, believers are those who submit to God's word. After all, what is our church's name? Berean Bible Church. Where does that name come from? Acts 17, 10, 11. Let me read that for you. Acts 17, 10 says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. This is Paul on his missionary journey, one of many. He shows up in Berea. He goes straight to the synagogue to share Jesus with these Jews. That's always what he did first. But most of the Jews, they rejected Paul and they rejected Jesus. Why? 
Because so much of this message about Jesus went against their traditions and their preconceived notions. How could the Messiah die? How could the Messiah not keep the traditions of the elders? How could the Messiah not conquer Rome? The gospel of Jesus really challenged their long-standing beliefs and traditions, and most of the Jews sided with their traditions. But what set these Bereans apart? Well, they went back to the word. They submitted themselves, their traditions, their long-standing beliefs to the word. The Bereans were the type of people who would say, look, if you can show me a chapter and a verse, I'll believe it. I'll submit to that. That's the mark and the measure of a true, mature believer. And it's no wonder, as verse 12 says, that many of them came to believe. As Paul, what Paul is saying was from the word. Now hopefully you can see how this attitude applies to the worship wars. When it comes to worship music in the church, so many, so many people get upset because their, their traditions are being challenged or their preferences are not being met. But wait, the call is to submit not to your preferences and your traditions, but to God and his word. So have you actually stopped and asked yourself, are your traditions and preferences biblical? I mean, are we dealing with biblical issues here? Have you even studied to see what does the word say or maybe not say about this issue? And then what you come up with, would you submit to that? What the word actually does or does not say about these issues? I'll give you an example. Let's just pretend that you hate clapping in church. You hate clapping and worship music. It's not your tradition, and it's not your preference either. And look, it's okay to have that preference. If you don't want to clap, don't clap. But can you show me a chapter and a verse where God condemns clapping or where that suggests it's an inappropriate expression of worship? Have you even searched? Have you even thought about that? Or do you just condemn your brother and sister because of your tradition and preference? And furthermore, what if I told you there's actually verses that prescribe clapping in worship? Like Psalm 47, verse 1, where the psalmist directs the whole congregation to, verse 1, Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. You know, in time, later, next few sermons, we're going to get into this. We're going to study the Bible, and we're going to take all these music style issues, and we're going to test them against Scripture, because that's all I care about. That's all we care about. But the bigger question, though, is, Will you submit to what we find, to what the Word says? And doesn't say, leaving freedom. Here, for example, it doesn't mean you have to clap per se, but it does mean you should not divide from, defame, slander your brother or sister who who chooses to do so. So you see, this is how submission can bring peace. If we all just came together and submitted ourselves to the Word, peace wouldn't be that far away. Secondly, Second area of submission that brings peace, you need to submit to God's people. You need to submit to God's people. You're probably thinking, wait, you're saying God actually calls us to submit to like everyone in the church. I can get the whole idea of submitting to authority, but like to, every, to one another, that, that doesn't sound right. Well, humor me and turn now to Ephesians chapter 5. This one will be in for a while, so you can turn there. Ephesians chapter 5. We talked earlier about walking, not according to man's ways, but according to God's ways. Well, Ephesians 4 through 6, that's, that's where we learn. That's all about God's ways. That's how to walk according to God's ways. 
Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, walk as children of the light. 5.15, walk in wisdom, and so on. He's telling us this is how to walk. This is how to walk according to God's ways. In verse 17, 18, we get a key verse. Ephesians 5, look at verse 17. He says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a key verse. Do you want to know God's will for your life? He's telling you, this is God's will. What is it? To be filled with the Spirit. The overall principle here is what you are filled with controls you. If you are filled with wine, you'll be controlled by wine, and it leads to sin. But if you are filled with the Spirit, you will be controlled by the Spirit, and it leads to righteousness. And this is God's will for your life. God wants you to live a Spirit-filled life, which according to the, the almost exact parallel of Colossians 3.16, it's the same as a Word-filled life. As you fill yourself with God's Word, so the Spirit fills you and directs you, influences you, and guides you toward God's ways. And the result of such a Spirit-filled life is spiritual fruit. Your life produces the actions and the attitudes that please God and model Christ. And what does a spiritual fruit look like? Well, here, in verses 19 through 21, Paul goes on to identify three outcomes of spirit-filled living. These are identified by three. They're called participles. They all hang off this one command to be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. Everything that follows just hangs off of that and showing us this is what it looks like. And so the first result of being filled with the Spirit comes in verse 19. He says, be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The first outcome of being filled with the Spirit basically is worship. You're speaking, you're singing, you're making melody to exalt God and to edify one another. This is musical worship, this is heart worship, this is truth-driven worship. And it's not surprising that the first outcome of being filled and controlled by God's Spirit is worship. The second outcome, verse 20. Secondly, he says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Here we have another participle telling us the outcome of being filled with the Spirit, and it is thanksgiving. He says, Always for all things. He's talking about everything. Always for all things give thanks to God through Jesus. That's part of our worship. It should be part of our everyday lives. As the Spirit fills us, He convicts us that we owe everything to God and we're going to thank God for everything. Now there's a third result of Spirit-filled living and it comes in verse 21. He says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And technically this is not a command. It's still a participle. So literally it reads being subject to one another. In other words, this also hangs off of that command in verse 18 to be filled with the Spirit. So in other words, this is just another outcome of Spirit-filled living. It's mutual submission to one another in the fear of Christ. That is what God wants His body, the church, to look like. And that applies to everyone without negating the special calls to submission that come later in Ephesians 5. Those, are, those perfectly stand, but in a special way, God wants all believers to regard one another with a spirit of humble submission. He says, in the fear of Christ, 
because we know Christ, we fear him, we revere him. It puts us in our place. We know that, you know, compared to Christ, when we're standing in his shadow, we're, none of us are better than anyone else. We're all saved by grace. At the foot of the cross, it's all level ground. No one is higher than anyone else on their own. Therefore, how should we regard one another? Humbly, with love, that seeks to serve one another. We should desire to submit our interests to them, just like Jesus did for us. As a simple, simple example, let's say you have a tradition where every Sunday after church, your tradition, you go get lunch at Branch Street, Je- Branch Street Deli, which is what you do. I actually don't like that place, but let's just say that's your tradition and it's your preference. Every Sunday. Let's say one Sunday, though, you have a relative comes, they come and visit, and just your beloved relative. You're so excited to see them. And after church, they say, hey, let's, I've been dying to check out Rooster Creek. I love that place. <laughs> what would you do? Well, I imagine because you love them, you would be happy to submit your tradition and your preference to them. In fact, it pleases you. You're happy to see them pleased for their joy, for their benefit. You're happy to just submit what you want for them. You get that, right? That, that makes sense. But if only believers in the church would treat their brothers and their sisters the same way. The picture here is one of mutual deference. Yeah, we all have our personal interests, but in love, the Lord is calling us to de- defer to one another. This is basically Paul's counsel to the very divided Corinthian church. They divided over everything. Leadership, communion, food, I mean, you name it. So Paul tells them, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.24, Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Like standing orders. There was too much self-will going on in the Corinthian church. People were thinking only about themselves and their interests, not that of the body. I know this all sounds very idealistic, but this is God's will and desire for the church, and it is attainable, not naturally. It's not going to come about naturally. That's just not going to happen. We humans as sinners were too divided and selfish. But, but the type of love and unity he's talking about here, it is supernatural, and it can't happen. Remember, this mutual submission, it's a result of spirit-filled living. So as believers do so, they will find a supernatural peace and unity. And you can see how this obviously relates to music. You may have your preferences, but as the Spirit directs you, you find yourself willing to defer your preferences to others. And you definitely don't want any damage to come to the body just on account of you and your desires. No, forbid that. So long as there's nothing unbiblical going on, you're happy to say, you know, how can I submit my preferences for the sake of the body, for the sake of the unity of the body? How can I defer because I love the body and that's what's best for the body? Again, that's not natural talk. That's spirit-filled talk. But if everyone in the church had this attitude, can you really see a church split happening because I prefer piano and you prefer guitar? No, I don't think so. So consider your preferences in music style. Would you be willing, for the sake of love and unity, to defer, to submit to others, to deny your self-will for the sake of the body? I hope so. Now, you might be wondering, wait, if everyone is submitting to one another, well, then whose will eventually gets done? 
right? If we're all just deferring to one another, someone's going to make a decision. If everyone defers, nothing will get accomplished. But this is where the third area of submission comes in, which brings peace. You need to submit to God's word. You need to submit to God's people. Number three, you need to submit to God's leaders. You need to submit to God's leaders. If you like, real quick, you can turn to Hebrews 13. This is one of the reasons God gave leaders to the local church. Local bodies need leaders. God ordained leaders, pastors, shepherds, elders, to oversee little flocks, providing them the leadership that they need. And what does God expect of these little flocks? God expects them to obey and to submit to their leaders to their God-given leaders in love and in joy. And definitely don't take my word for that. Just listen to Hebrews 13, 17. This is at the end where he's giving a bunch of commands, and he says, by way of command, Hebrews 13, 17, to the church, he says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. This is a double command. Obey and submit to your leaders. He's talking about your local leaders, your elders, your pastors, your overseers, those who keep watch over your souls. Do this joyfully, willingly. Otherwise, it's unprofitable for you. Now, in the past, for sure, that's got to be one of the most abused verses by the clergy and one of the most ignored verses by the congregation. In our have-it-your-way culture, the last thing people want to do today is think, I'm going to go to this place, and now I'm, I'm, I'm submitting myself to them. I don't want to do that. You know how many people have been burnt by submitting to wicked shepherds? But nonetheless, despite abuses by ungodly leaders, this is still God's will, is it? And his command to you still today. And through this, God provides leadership for local churches and that includes musical leadership. You need to have godly biblical leaders over you. That shouldn't be optional. Today it is, but you need leaders over you, biblical leaders. And I pray you evaluate us all the time per Scripture's standard. Please do. But if your leaders approve of and introduce some musical changes, stylistic changes, and there's nothing unbiblical about them, Well, at the end of the day, you should be able to say, well, I'm happy to submit to what they have decided. They're my leaders. These are my shepherds. They care for our souls. I'm going to trust them. Again, we call you to search the word yourself and to evaluate us, but at the end of the day, doesn't this verse still stand? And again, presuming biblical leadership, if everyone in the church truly submitted to their godly leaders like this, wouldn't that bring about peace in the worship wars? I mean, all of this applies to all sorts of issues, like carpet color. We didn't ask what carpet color you wanted. We just installed it. I hope it's okay. But for sure, concerning music in the church, submission to God's word, submission to God's people, and submission to God's leaders, that will bring peace. And don't you think so many churches could have avoided their splits, their headaches, their grief, if they just did what God calls us all to do in these regards. And it still applies, including our local body, 
Will you heed this call? This truly is an essential heart attitude for all believers. Submission. There's so many sources of division in the church, from music to a million other things. How do we emerge unified? Well, the first essential heart attitude needed is submission, whereby we lay down ourselves for others. The second is this, humility. And don't worry, these last two are rather brief. But number two, humility. All that stuff about submission sounds great, but it's also not easy. Submission, that's a hard thing. People have a very hard time submitting their will, their preference, their desires to others. That's a hard pill to swallow for many. It for sure requires what? Humility. Great humility. Pride is the ultimate enemy of our soul. Pride sparks all division. Pride keeps us from godly submission. But God calls us to humility. Humility is one of the chief defining characteristics of a true believer. And it's absolutely essential if you want any hope of surviving the worship wars. I love this. James 4, he says, James 4.1, he says, What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source, your pleasures, that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, he starts chapter 4 by nailing the source of all of our divisions, including the worship wars. It's you. It's our selfish lusts, our sinful hearts. And if in pride all you pursue is your desires, of course there's going to be division. But like verse 6 says in James 4, God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The prideful will find God as their opponent. But those in humble, or rather those who humble themselves, will find his grace and will find the foundation for unity and peace in the church. Like he goes on to say in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And then verse 11 he says, And do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against, speaks against the law and judges the law. Now, he's not at all telling us not to rebuke one another over sin. In fact, at the end of James 5, he tells us we must strive to turn one another back from sin. Rather, the word here, it's talking about slander and defamation. This is where believers criticize and degrade one another. But even when dealing with sin issues... Evil speech toward others has no place in the church. And then for sure, when dealing with non-sin issues like music style, slander, defamation has no place in our behavior. But that takes humility. When a person is coming from a place of pride, you know, it's their way or the highway. They're right, you're wrong. They'll prove their point. And if, if, it ne- if they need to, they will resort to slander, to defamation, to character assassination, to, to take you down and to prove they're right. And do you think that's ever happened in the history of the worship wars the past 50 years? Yeah, I think that's happened. But that's why we need humility. It should never come to that. But it takes humility. Let me also point you to Philippians 2, one more quick text. Philippians 2. Church in Philippi was a great church, a godly church, a mature church. They had no serious doctrinal issues. But they had some who were characterized by selfish ambition and it hindered their Unity. So Paul addresses it. He gives them the key to living in harmony in the church. This watershed passage, Philippians chapter 2. I love this. He says, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There you have it. That's, that's God's will and desire for you, for the body, for the church, to live as one, united in seeking him, fellowshipping together, glorifying him. And this is possible. I mean, we should have the fellowship of the Spirit. But what does it take on our part? Well, verse 3. Right after this, he says, Well, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, that's a, those are profound couple of verses. How many things should you do based on selfishness? He says, do nothing. Nothing from selfishness. Not a single thing from selfishness or empty conceit, where you think higher of yourself than you should. When it comes to dealing with others, serving yourself should not be your driving force. Now, I'm going to do this to serve me. That should be out of the equation, he says. What should be in the equation? Humility of mind. Humility of mind. It just, it just deflates the ego. Instead, you need to see others through the lens of Christ and count them more important than yourself. Now, after this, Paul, he doesn't say it's wrong to have personal interests. We do. We're human. But he says, you know, basically, we look out for our personal interests enough already. How about you just focus on looking out for the interests of others instead? Because you're going to take care of yourself enough. That's going to happen. But just seek the best of others. Serve them. It does take great humility. But it's another verse where if everyone in the church just did this and lived out those two verses, how many splits over music do you think there would be? Do you think in the worship wars, human egos ever get in the way of reconciliation? Yeah. Well, we need Philippians too. We, we need humility. It's hard though. It's hard to do. You might wonder then, why, why should we do this? Why should I count others more important than myself? Like, I don't feel like I want to do that. Why should I? Well, this is simply what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is the path he left for us. And you, you claim to follow him, right? Okay, so you claim to follow him. This is the path he's telling us to go. Remember, as believers, we seek his ways now, not our own. And this, that's his way. That's his way. Didn't Jesus lead the charge when it comes to laying down his life, his interests for others, counting them more important than himself? What does the next verse say? Verse 5, Philippians 2, if you're there. He says, have this attitude, what attitude? That humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at Christ's ultimate humility from the incarnation to the crucifixion. I mean, if there is anyone who is ever entitled to serve himself, to do everything for himself, it was Jesus. He would be perfectly justified in doing so. But for our sakes, for our benefit, 
for our life, for our salvation. He laid down his life, his interests. He submitted to the Father, and he obeyed, and he laid down himself for us, that we would have life. And talk about humility. And now, do you see a problem then when people who claim to follow that same Jesus refuse to lay down their petty differences for one another? I mean, it's not like you're being asked to die for the sins of the world. But in the same humility, the Lord is asking you to lay down your preferences, to lay down your interests for the sake of your brethren. He's calling you to lay down your self. Remember, the defining call of any Christian. What does it mean to be a Christ follower, a little Christian, a Christian, or rather a little Christ, that's the word Christian means, a Christ follower. The defining call, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then follow him. And that takes humility from start to finish. And if you have the humility to follow Christ in the first place, you should have the humility to lay down your life for the brethren in more ways than one. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. With this, we can transition to the third and final essential heart attitude that brings peace to the worship wars, and it is love. Third, lastly, love. Here, I hardly need to say anything, though, for believers, because just hearing this, it should convict you, it should fix you. It's enough just to say it. You know the love God showed you in salvation by giving you his own son. You know the love he calls you to have for others. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. No one's exempt. And this applies for sure to the worship wars. When it comes to music styles in the church, we're not dealing with heresy. You're dealing with brothers and sisters who are different than you. They have different traditions, different preferences. You may not share those traditions and preferences, but do you love them? You know, there's different people over there. They're brothers. They have the gospel, but they're different. But do you love them? Do you love them more than you love your traditions, your preferences, your way? God did. God loves the church. Jesus loves his church. He died for his church. He laid down his life for his church. Will will you? Will you love them more than yourself? pretty much, and lay down yourself for them. Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond everything else, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's the glue that holds us together. Submitting to one another, being humble before one another, and loving one another. Isn't that the recipe for a united church? And isn't that God's will? And isn't that pretty much the answer to the worship wars? If we would just do this. Examine how you have viewed and treated others in the past and take seriously these calls to submission, to humility, and to love. The worship wars have been fueled by rebellion and pride. But if we collectively display a godly submission that's directed by a true humility, just basked in love, well, there will be peace. There will be reconciliation, supernatural reconciliation. And our witness to the world will be restored. 
whereby we can show them that in all things, including our musical differences, but in all things, Jesus reconciles. He is the answer. He reconciled us to himself. He can reconcile them as well. Let's show them what reconciled living looks like. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we we exalt you, the one true God, the perfect God. You are high and lifted up. You are worthy of praise and glory. You are jealous for your own glory and rightly so. And if there is ever a being who did not need to look out for others but only himself, it would be you. You you are supreme. But just your love, your compassion, that you would also look out for us. And we did not deserve it. We are your creation, but we have fallen. We have chosen our own sin. We are little rebels. The only thing we deserve is a swift judgment. But in, in great love, you sent Jesus to die for us, to lay down his life, that we would be reconciled to you. The humility of the incarnation and then the crucifixion, all just to to get us back, to to help secure rebels and to lead us in your way. We we can't fathom that, but the best we can, it moves us to to thank you, to worship you, to follow you. Lord, as you invade our lives, how can we help but forsake our ways and turn to your ways? And this most certainly applies to our differences today in the church. We're, we're the redeemed. We're those who've been reconciled and turned to God's ways. The old ways can crop up, but Lord, remind us. Remind us of these truths, of what you've done for us. And then by submission, by humility, by love, uh, we can still come together. Now it's our turn to lay down our lives for the brethren. Give us your grace even in this, for we are still weak and fallen. But Lord, let us take up this charge this morning to seek you, to serve you, to love one another and to be perfected in in love and the bond of peace. We thank you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.